If you weren't at the retreat, the way that Michael described that with just pixie sticks everywhere and a dude named DJ Puberty, it sounds kind of cultish, but it's not. Uh, there are other things that happen. I'm still recovering from that dance party. You guys were there. You saw I was at like a 9.5 out of 10. I'm just like feeling it, jumping up and down. And I thought, wow, this can't get any more wild. And then Waka Flocka starts and I just lost it and decided dancing isn't enough. I need to scream as well. So my voice is still torn up somehow. I've been drinking tea. My wife says it's supposed to work and it doesn't at all. Uh, so, um, so hopefully my voice doesn't crack like a 12-year-old. But anyways, uh, I, yeah, my name is Reed Smith. I'm hyped about this First Corinthians series. This is our third week in it. Last week, Stephen was preaching on chapter one of 1 Corinthians, verses 10 through 17. You guys can go ahead and open your Bibles, and maybe you're a guy that's like, or a guy or girl that's like, oh, I just like to listen. This time, get a Bible app right now. It's free, something like that. The words aren't gonna be on, on the screen, and this text that we're going through is just rich. So I would encourage you to read along with me. We will be picking up right where he left off at 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 18. The first word of verse 18, though, is for, as in F-O-R, and that word, you might know this, tells us that there's something before this sentence that matters to this sentence. Verse 17 ended with Paul, who wrote this letter, saying that he was sent to them to preach the gospel, not to preach it with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. It's important we know what Paul is saying here because he goes on to describe the gospel even further here in the text that we're about to jump into. He's saying that to articulate the gospel or the story of Jesus, we do not need to present it in some flashy way. And is anybody in here currently working on a paper? I don't know if it's midterms. I've lost track of that since I'm not a college student. Or you finished one this week. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of papers. I don't know who is a weirdo if you like papers, but... Um, the ones that I never liked, the ones that I especially didn't like, are the ones where it's a super long paper, but you really don't know what you're writing about. You don't have much to say about it. And I'd raise my hand and be like, how long does the paper need to be? They're like, a minimum of eight to 10 pages. I'm like, okay, minimum of eight pages is what that means. Got it. Um, not promoting that. That's just kind of how I think about it. And the due date would approach, and you just start dressing this paper up, and you are trying to stretch out the margins a little bit, try and have maybe a couple title pages if possible. Um, add all my middle names. Let's see if we can work this font size up a little bit. I, I know some of you have done this. You add extra spaces between the paragraph, and if you're not a genius, but if you're pretty sharp, I mean, I did this. You go and you find every period or comma, and you make it size 15, amen? <laughs> Let's go. And you just start thesaurusing every word. That's not a word. Should have done it for the sermon, but you just... You're trying to fill it with words you have never even said in your life, trying to fluff this thing up. And, and there's so much fluff by the end of it that you're not saying anything at all. And you're trying to distract from the fact that you have no idea what you're talking about. And you're distracting from that fact. And, and my point is the gospel or the story of Jesus, we're talking about that tonight, is not something that needs to be dressed up. You don't have to distract from the message of Jesus like you need to distract from the topic that you're supposed to be writing about in that paper because the gospel speaks for itself and does not need eloquent wisdom. It does not need to be fancied up because it is the power of God. So that being said, let's pick up as Paul continues to describe the story of Jesus at chapter one, verse 18. Read along with me. 
For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Let's slow down there. So the Corinthians, the people that this letter was written to, they were intrigued by the person that came off as a very wise person and a very smooth, persuasive speaker. And and Paul didn't hold back here in these verses because he's confronting the culture that they are in. He's basically saying God has revealed the world's wisdom to actually be foolish, and he's elevating the story of Jesus, a.k.a. the word of the cross, as it's called here, And in turn, he reveals human wisdom to be very small and very meaningless. That's what he's doing here. And this is not an attack on wisdom or knowledge. This is an attack on what the Corinthian culture was doing to their hearts. Because I I do want this to be clear. The Christian life should not be without intellect. The Christian life is not where you throw intellect to the wind. You throw all thinking to the wind and you have some blind faith. That's not how it is. Wisdom is a big part of the Christian life. We should be growing in knowledge of Jesus. That is so important. What we need to understand here is you can set out to obtain all the wisdom that you could ever hope to have, all the knowledge in the world. You can seek out all the answers that you could ever hope to find, but if you don't know Jesus, it amounts to nothing. That's what he's saying here. The Corinthians and all of us should seek wisdom, but here I think is a question to ask. If you're a note taker, this might be helpful. Are we seeking wisdom that is building up ourselves or are we seeking wisdom that is building up our faith? I think that will be helpful in helping us uh, think rightly about wisdom in the Christian life. And when he talks about the Jews and Greeks or the Jews and Gentiles, kind of interchangeable there, the Jewish people, they're the more religious people in this culture and they had their, this idea in their heads about a Messiah, about who they thought a Messiah would be and Jesus was not fitting that mold. He was not fitting their expectations. So they wanted more and they looked for signs elsewhere and they wanted a Messiah on their terms and their expectations. And it, it's likely true that they looked for a ruler that would come with trumpet sound and he would conquer Rome triumphantly, and it would just be epic. And then when he mentions the Gentiles or the Greeks, these are the people that had a less religious background. They didn't have these same preconceptions in their head about a Messiah, but they did have an idea in their head of what a God would look like. And again, Jesus was not fitting these expectations. In both cases, they had this worldview in their head that they wanted to put onto the story of Jesus and they wanted their worldview to shape what they believe about Jesus when the gospel should have been the thing shaping their worldview. They were approaching this all wrong. And, and that's the case. That's how it should be because we cannot figure out our way into salvation. We cannot answer our way into a relationship with God or obtain enough wisdom to figure out God. So we can't rely on our intellect or our thoughts or our wisdom the way that we need to rely on the wisdom of God. The Jews and Greeks were relying on what they thought, what they wanted. That's why the Jews stumbled, or it can actually be translated that 
The Jews were offended. It wasn't just a stumbling block. It was offensive to them what Paul was saying about the Messiah. And this is why the Gentiles considered the message foolish. But God was pleased to save those who believe in Jesus, even though this idea of having faith in Jesus was considered foolish. And when it says God's weakness and God's foolishness, it means what seems to be foolishness or weakness on God's part is actually his wisdom and strength. We are the fools in this scenario. The Corinthians are the fools and we are the fools when you compare us with God. And I just said a lot about wisdom that ironically might have been a bit confusing. I just want to slow down here. When we are talking about God, we must understand that he's more wise than us and we also must understand that he's totally different from us. Some of you might have heard um, a reference to Isaiah 55 before. God was saying in this passage to the Israelites and to all of humanity, he's saying, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Because we are sinful people. We are not God, we do not act like God, we do not think like God or understand like God. And the problem for the Corinthians, the problem now, the problem has always been sin, which entered the world and completely screwed the world up a long time ago. It's still the problem, and that's why, as Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. And that's why, if you've been here on Sunday mornings, we preach about Christ crucified. And I'm bringing up Jesus again tonight. Stephen brought him up last week. And every week at Salt, we're preaching Christ crucified. And we will continue to because the solution to the problem of sin is Christ crucified. And we could live a thousand lives and read a million books or more, and we would not do things the same way that God does things. But the Jews and Greeks that Paul is describing first here were not content with the message of Christ crucified. They thought they needed someone that one looked more powerful than Jesus, and they thought they needed someone they thought they needed a message that looked more powerful and complex than this message of Jesus. And Paul, would, who wrote this, would not be surprised to hear parents, friends, he wouldn't be surprised to hear people in this room say, hey, Christianity is stupid. He would not be shocked to hear that. He would not be surprised to sit in a class with you, I've at least experienced this, where the professor is saying, to believe in Christianity to believe in Jesus is stupid. He, he called this long before we were ever born. And it is extremely tough, at least in my opinion. Maybe you're great at responding to that. I don't know how to respond to that. You're sitting in class and your professor just starts ripping on Christianity, talking about how dumb the idea of Jesus is. I would just get real antsy and uncomfortable and I'm like, this is a big class, like what should I do? Is this gonna be a debate? Are we about to have like God's Not Dead 4 happen right here on the UNI campus? <laughs> Everybody's gonna cheer and I'm gonna give out free Bibles. They all became Christians. And then I walk out and that didn't happen. And I'm like, I don't know what the heck I'm supposed to do with that. Because that's going to happen. The world thinks and is going to continue to think as we're in a broken world that the message of Jesus is garbage. And I wanna tell you right now, as Christians, we should absolutely recognize that the true story of Jesus is a wild message that is tough to wrap our minds around. And I'm hoping just for me personally that I never stop being enthralled with it and I never stop going nuts about how crazy and huge the truth of Jesus is. Because we're talking about a guy born from a virgin woman in a barn into a no-name family living a seemingly obscure life for much of his life, almost his entire life. He hung out with messed up people, a bunch of random women, 12 dudes that we honestly would probably just call them idiots today. 
He lived a perfect life. We can't do that. Healed people and was hated for it. Performed miracles like walking on water. And then he went on to be betrayed. He was beaten. He was laughed at during all this. Literally nailed to a cross, which if you didn't know, because we have this idea of a cross in our heads in 2018. A cross is a torture device and a death device for criminals. And this is God in the form of a human we're talking about. And this is why the Jews were saying, this doesn't sound like a Messiah to us. And the Greeks thought this was a foolish description of a God because Paul kept preaching this and churches were founded on this and churches were preaching this. And some at Corinth just couldn't wrap their heads around any of that story, much less the idea that he was resurrected from that death. That's the kicker. And then he went on to speak to many people. He showed up at people's houses he appeared to many people. And all that story of Jesus happened, why? Here's another kicker. To save his own fallen creation. To save people that hated him. And he's still saving people today. Some might be in this room. We're glad you're here. There's people today that hate Jesus that he is saving. And we sing songs about this story. And I'm talking about it right now to a bunch of college students in the middle of Iowa. And there are people, Michael kind of hinted at this, or implied it a little bit, there are people in this room that went from death to life this past weekend at a random camp in Iowa because of Jesus. That's wild. And you, you guys all just rolled up to a building. I don't know, if you didn't see this, you're oblivious. There is a cell phone tower shaped like a cross, which is a torture device, like I said. Like a cell phone tower shaped like anything but a cell phone tower is pretty obnoxious. Like that's weird, just right outside of a church building. You can laugh. I know it's a little bit of a serious tone. I think that's super weird to have out there. Anyways, not only did that stuff happen, but it says God is pleased to display his wisdom and power in this. In his wisdom, God knows and has always known the capacity that we have as humans to be good and righteous people. And that capacity is zero. We cannot save ourselves, and the word of the cross is the message of salvation for all people. And God is not surprised that the message was countercultural to the Corinthians, and he's not surprised that it's countercultural today in the Cedar Valley and all over the world in 2018. And this is because we live in an earning culture. This isn't unique to just this year and this place. Humans naturally create an earning culture and an earning mentality. Let me show you this. Does anybody have that friend? Can you think of that friend that is just incredible at giving gifts? Can anybody think of that friend? Some of you are like, no, because I am that friend. Yeah, we love you if that's you. Like your birthday rolls around and this person gives you the most thoughtful and useful gift in your, in your head. You're like, when it's their turn, when it's their birthday, this is the year I'm going to kill it. Their birthday rolls around, and you're like, here's another $15 gift card to Long John Silver's. Happy birthday again. <laughs> it's those people, you people, if that's you, you're awesome. But my point is, a couple rare times in my life, a friend or my wife, Casey, just because she's awesome, shout out to her, will bring a gift or even a snack, like just a bottle of chocolate milk. I'm a big chocolate milk guy, or a scone. Shout out to scones, those are incredible. They'll bring one. Nick Anderson did that once, just because. Somebody brings you a gift or flowers or whatever it is just because. And you're like, that is so thoughtful. But inside you're like, this doesn't feel right. Because you think, what do you need? What can I get you? 
can I bring you a coffee? Can I send you flowers to work? Because at least I feel kind of anxious. I'm like, thanks for the gift, but I think I need to pay you back. My gut reaction is, I need to pay you back. I didn't do anything to earn this, and there's no occasion for this. And they didn't do it to get a thank you in return or anything. It's just so countercultural to us when that happens because we think we're supposed to get what we deserve, and we think we always have to earn what we want, which in a lot of cases is true. And that is a part of the reason that the good news of Jesus the gospel is perceived as foolish. It's because we did not deserve Jesus dying for us. We did not bring ourselves to a relationship with Jesus. And actually, he has unblinded our eyes to even be able to see our need for him. I cannot repay Jesus. You cannot repay him. He's bridged the enormous gap that I can't even describe between us and God. And, and everyone that has faith in Jesus and his perfect life, death, and resurrection will be with him forever. That's perfect. To be with the one true holy God forever. It's tough to wrap your mind around how this can be. And I just kind of want you to sit in this reality with me. I kind of just want to walk off stage so we can sing about this and how wild the truth of Jesus is. I'll say a few more things, but... Just sit in this reality with me of how wild the gospel is that this is the most amazing gift that we have been given. That the God that created us and everything, the creator, sacrificed himself for his own broken creation. Keep reading with me. We'll pick up at verse 26. This part just punches me in the face repeatedly. Uh, starting at verse 26, he says, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Luke obviously already told you the title of my sermon that was never supposed to come out on this stage, but that's it because we're talking about boasting and Paul's words here continue to challenge this earning mentality that we're talking about. And, and Paul's not just trying to roast them. He's not like, hey, let's have a discouragement circle. Let me tell you everything wrong with you. He's just like, hey, did God save you because of your merit or because of something special about you? The answer is no. And they knew that because he's saying, you Corinthians are not even considered to be powerful. You weren't born into a special social class. You're not viewed as the super wise people that are valued so highly in your culture. But Jesus saved you. He's already lifted up the wisdom of God and made the wisdom of these Corinthians and just human wisdom seem really, really insignificant. And he's going to keep making them feel really, really small. And I think that Paul is doing this because the Corinthians in this culture that so valued eloquence and human wisdom, they got so caught up in those things and they desired to be relevant and they started to believe the lie that they would become something, that they would become something important if they could know more, if they could have more answers, if they could be wise in the eyes of others. These Corinthians literally wanted to just up their social status, at least some of them in this culture, 
to a new social class. They weren't born into a noble or high class family, but they wanted to look like they were and live like they were. They were aiming for relevance. And, and I think that we today as humans are wired to try to feel relevant. Think about this with me. How many things in your life do you own, do you do, or do you say to try and feel valued by other people? How many things do you do for the approval of others, whether it's your friends, your family, even your future potential employers? The Corinthians knew what was lifted up so high in their culture, the wisest person, as I said, and the one that was in a high social class. They looked like they were a part of a noble family. So that's what they aimed to be, and that's what they became so enamored with, was that type of person and being that type of person. And this is expressed differently in Cedar Falls in 2018. I don't think that anybody during the meet and greet tonight was like, hey, I'm Bill and I'm of noble birth. We're like, no, Bill, you're a freak. Don't ever shake my hand again. <laughs> no, nobody's saying that. It is expressed differently, but I think that at the heart of it, it is the same thing, that we seek out worth and significance. How many things do we post on social media with a desire to get people to think our life looks just right and our feed looks just right? and we have enough followers, and it looks like we have a ton of fun. It's like, yeah, I'm tailgating at Kinnick, go Hawks. Anybody else here at Kinnick? Double tap this if you like Bud Light as much as me. Like, weird pose, but that sort of thing happens. You've never had that caption, I guarantee it, but we do that. I just, how many articles of clothing do we buy to be considered relevant, or who do we try to be seen around or liked by to feel like we are loved? Or maybe you're seeking out that job that you think will make you enough and will give you that secure sense of pride. And this next one hurts a little bit. We can try to be good connection group leaders because we're hungry to be on the mission of God. Or sometimes we're just hungry to be seen and praised by other people. And all the examples I just used are examples of good things that we can enjoy. It is not a bad thing if you're enjoying some tailgating at the Dome or at Kinnick, but we have this lurking temptation from our flesh and from the world to feel pride in even the smallest of things. And, and that's really what boasting is. He says that word a couple times. You guys, it's not a fancy word or anything. You don't need to thesaurus that word. It's a sense of pride in something that we've done or in who we are. And we boast in seemingly significant life-altering things all the way down to the dumbest things ever. I have a lot of things in my life that I just like, feel like I want to brag about the stupidest little things. For example, I can ride a unicycle. Somebody cheered for that and that's, no, I'm not done yet. I, I don't know if I'm still proficient at it. A, a handful of years ago, I was. And if you don't think that that's cool, you're absolutely right. It's not cool at all. It's extremely late. And I was that guy that's just like, this is cool. Not many people can do this. Do this. Now I'm like, that makes sense. Much less functional than a bike. Don't ride a unicycle. Makes no sense. I was the guy in the dorms riding my unicycle around the dorms. They're like, hey, can you not do that? And I kept being like, oh, yeah, I'm BA. I'm going to keep doing this through the hallways. I hope I can say that. BA. Sorry. Bad attitude is what I meant. And <laughs> that, I'm like, hey, girl, I can ride a unicycle. She's like, good for you. Weird. Um, I'll stop on that rabbit trail. That's a weird thing to be cocky about. And we boast in dumb things like that. I, I have a list of them. Or in, 
in legitimately or legitimate seeming things that seem so much bigger than that that we think make us feel important, and this sinks so deeply into our walk with Jesus. I've been following Jesus for a large portion of my short life, and frequently, I'm not, I'm, I'm totally embarrassed by this. I feel a desire to be proud that I have looked like a good church kid for most of my life. Haven't missed many Sundays, haven't missed many Thursdays in college. Was a student leader for SALT. I get paid to do ministry. I get paid to spend a lot of time in the Bible like right now. And I just think I'm a great Christian for that, right? I have that temptation to think that. That's the religious leaning that I have. And I've never been told to do that by a church that I've been a part of. My family has never told me to feel pride in that. But it just feels pretty good at times to look like that good person, to look like that church kid. I'm just trying to be real with you. And in high school, I did not drink, so I thought I made it easier for Jesus to love me and save me than my friends that did. And this goes back to that earning culture we've been talking about. We think, I know I've sinned, but I haven't sinned that bad, have I? I'm more worthy than these other people, right? I believe that some in this room are in a similar boat to me. Some have grown up in a church background or a family that says, whatever you do, do these good things and you are good with God. Don't swear, don't have sex outside of marriage, attend a service each week and you are good to go and try and be a relatively kind person. We have a pride within us because we're broken humans that tells us, I am worthy because of who I am, because of what I've achieved, because of how people perceive me. And it tells us I'm worthy of Jesus' death and resurrection because unlike the guy down the road from me, I haven't lived the typical college life. I haven't gotten into the really dark sins. That's the temptation we have is to think like that. We get this whole Jesus thing in our head. We hear it a couple times or a hundred times, but experience a consistent temptation to believe that we are someone that's valuable and worthy because of our goodness. You think I'm a relatively good person when you line me up with other college students. And what Paul's doing in writing this, he's leveling the playing field. He's saying, give me the most religious, good-seeming person on earth and give me the most rebellious person on earth. And Jesus has saved people and saves people in both of these groups, not on account of who they are, but on account of his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection, on account of his love for us. And for the last few minutes, my goal was not to make you feel like trash. Some are like, hey, the short red-haired guy told me not to feel proud of my Fortnite accomplishments. Hey, you're killing it out there. But my goal isn't to just trash you or anything. My goal is for us to simply be humbled. This is another reason why the gospel seems so foolish to the world. It seems so foolish to the people that don't believe it because who would want to believe in a message that tells you you have nothing to boast in? Who wants to believe that? And I'm aware of the person in here that's been sitting and you feel like I've completely missed it when it comes to your story. You're like, yep, you said some good things but missed me just right over your head because some of you in here feel very insignificant because of something you've done or something that's happened to you or because of who you are. You don't feel worthy in any way. You don't feel like you have something to boast in. And I hope that this is a hopeful message to you. 
I want us to key in very closely on something here. Look at this passage with me. Twice in this passage, Paul has something to say about boasting. And he ends the passage, he ends this chapter with, well, it wasn't a chapter when he wrote it, but we're ending this part with, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I pointed out that we have this desire within us to boast, whether you feel cocky about insignificant things like me, or you feel hopeless, we desire to boast about something. And what I love is, this just gets me hyped, God does not demand that we suppress that desire or that we ignore it or that we fight it and fight it until it goes away. God actually fulfills that desire and gives us something far better to boast in. That's what's happening here. You desire to boast in what you've done and that's going to leave you angry and disappointed with yourself if it hasn't already, but Jesus's life will not. You desire to boast in some hope that you've acquired or in some knowledge that you have, and Jesus gives you more hope and more wisdom than you can even fathom. And you desire to feel that sense of worth and significance, but you can't seem to find it. How about that the God of the universe was killed on a cross, not because he had to, but because he loves us, because he loves you. That will make you feel more loved than your family or a relationship or your friendships ever could. And for those that are the ones that feel hopeless and boastless, that is to give you hope. You have that in Jesus because all of us are missing it if we choose something outside of Jesus to boast in. We are missing it and we're being confident in something worthless if we do not know and trust in Jesus. We are coming up short if we look for significance outside of a relationship with Jesus. He is the center of wisdom. He's God's wisdom for us. He became righteousness for us. We could, these last few verses here, we could spend days on each one. He allows us to be viewed by God as holy, and he redeems us. This is what the only legitimate boast looks like, celebrating Jesus and being confident in Jesus. We desperately need and want something to have hope in. We need and want something to have pride in, and we have it in Jesus. And this is, like I said, a wild thing to wrap your head around that the God of the universe sacrificed himself for his fallen creation. And it seems unbelievable. It seems unbelievable that we should celebrate a message that leads us completely away from feeling proud of ourselves because the message of the world is always be proud of yourself, be proud of who you are. It seems unbelievable that we should believe that. But as we understand the overwhelming gap that exists between us and God because of our sin, it will bring us to our knees. It will cause us to let go of what we're holding on so tightly to feel pride in ourselves. Because we found the one thing, the one person that is, that we can actually truly boast in, and it's Jesus. If you guys would go ahead and stand with me, we're gonna keep singing together. I want to pray against the temptation to boast in ourselves, and I wanna pray a prayer of thanksgiving for the wild and hard to wrap our minds around message of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you do not rely on us. Thank you 
that you do not call us to follow certain rules in order to earn your favor, in order to bridge the gap between us and you. We need you. Thank you that you sent your son. Thank you that our wisdom is not like your wisdom. Thank you that we are fools compared to you because we have this earning mentality. We feel like we can earn it. We feel like we're good enough and that's not true. Help that truth to just ring in our ears and as we sing, even to the person that's never heard that before, even to the person that is struggling to believe it, even to the person in here that thinks that this message is foolish, would you please just cut to the heart with that? And we pray against this temptation in ourselves to boast. In ourselves, we pray against this temptation to be arrogant, this temptation to think we're better than the person down the row from us, or we're better than the person that's at rock bottom right now, or we're better than a family member or friend. You level the playing field and you make us feel so significant. You give us so much significance. We are not worthy, we are not significant, but we get to be with you, the one true holy God. Thank you for that. Pray these things in your son's name, amen.